All right, so Romans chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there real quick. And uh, if you missed last week, we opened up Romans 12 last week. You didn't miss a whole lot because we literally just read the first two verses. So you're fine. You're not, you know, you didn't miss a ton. Um, And what we're going to do is kind of pick up with a little bit of a review and then kind of move into the new material. uh, And we'll just see how far we can go. Uh, So Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. We'll read those again just so we're all on the same page. So if I can get a volunteer to read that for us, that would be great. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Who wants to read? Okay, Sandra, when you get there, if you want to read that, that'd be awesome. I know we got to talk to our sound guy about getting better internet in here. No, no, no. Let's just blame TJ. Okay, what am I reading? He wants faster internet too, so he's, he's all about that. Uh, just verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. Okay, so we started last week, and in your notes you'll see this. We started last week talking about kind of breaking down these first couple of verses, really the first verse uh, specifically. And we talked about even how Paul opens Romans 12, transitioning from Romans 9, or really, yeah, 9, 10, and 11, kind of seemed to kind of uh, deal with an issue of God's sovereignty, our free will to choose Christ or reject Christ. And then he deals with the Jews being restored at some point, that there will be a restoration of Israel. And so then he jumps into Romans 12, which seems to kind of be out of place. But if you go back, one thing that's helped me is when you read Romans 8, and you see how he ends Romans 8 talking about that nothing will separate us from the love of God, and he talks about there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he moves into, if you almost kind of take 9, 10, and 11 and just kind of remove them, and then you go to Romans 12, there's going to be a little bit more of a flow in my mind. Because Romans 12 starts what we kind of call like the Christian life application time. Like this is where we talk about how those things we've already been studying apply to our lives. And so we know that it all flows together, but if you're having a hard time transitioning from 11 to 12, that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's kind of moving back into an application of what he really unpacked in Romans Eight. And so he starts with a great gospel plea. He doesn't say, I command you. He says, I beseech you. The idea here is I plead with you, right? I'm asking you. I'm not commanding you. I'm asking you. And that's really kind of reflective of the gospel, that there's, there's no command there. There is this idea of I'm asking you. I'm pleading with you. Then he gets into the phrase, therefore. We talked about that a little bit. Um, that there's three uh, very key therefores in Romans, and this is in your notes. Uh, we talked about Romans 5.1, Romans 8.1, and Romans 12.1, okay? The reason these are kind of broke up this way is because they're really good divisions to the book of Romans, okay? Now remember, you might be looking at that going, man, that's really crazy that 5.1, 8.1, and 12.1 all are natural breaks in the text, Like, that's amazing that Paul wrote it that way. Remember, when Paul wrote this, there was no chapter 12, 11, 10. It was one flowing letter, right? We've gone back in and we've added these breaks to make it flow. That's why when somebody was translating this, they said, okay, here's some natural breaks. And so we'll start some chapters like this. Sometimes the the breaks that are in the text create new chapters. 
Sometimes you'll find where a chapter will end and a new chapter will start, but the thought will continue. Okay, there's still like a thought going on there that he's finishing up in those first few verses. So it's not always that way, but here in Romans we see this kind of breaking up and it just happens to fall in the translation at the beginning of these chapters. And they're great transitions, right? Great divisions. Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with that are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore. And we always have to ask, what is it? Therefore, right? Everything that precedes Romans 12.1 is why he's saying therefore. So he's saying, I beseech you, therefore, meaning all 11 chapters so far in our understanding, all this information, because of that, now I'm going to ask you to either do this or apply this or to think this way. So I'm asking you to respond to these things. He goes on to say, then he says, uh, brethren, which is a reference to the church. So we know he's speaking to believers here, okay? This is not the world, okay? This is not even the Jews that are on the fence. These are those that are in Christ. Believing Jews, Gentiles that have come to Christ, they're his brethren, okay? He's saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And that's where we're going to pick up in our notes. I think we stopped here last week, if I made my mark right. Okay, so by the mercies of God. So when you sit back and think about the previous 11 chapters and think of the uh, first three uh, we're presenting the world guilty before God. And then the beautiful reality that Christ came and the gift of God is eternal life. You cannot summarize those chapters better than with the word mercies. I mean, think about that. The first three chapters open up. It's not a pretty picture, right? Chapter 1 talks about that the, the Gentiles are guilty before God and all the sin. Right? I mean, just go back. If you free time this week, just go back and read chapter 1 again. And you read the list of sins that were being committed. Okay, it's crazy what Paul was seeing in the culture of that day and the sin that was just going rampant. Then chapter 2 is dealing with who's guilty before God. I know this is a long time ago, but who's chapter 2 dealing with being guilty before God? Specific group of people. Right, so the Gentiles are chapter 1, the Jews are chapter 2, and who's in chapter 3? The whole world. Right? It's like, hey, there's the Jews and the Gentiles, and in case you thought you were free of that, you're included in the whole world. For, the whole, for all have sinned and fallen short, right? So then when you get to 4 and 5, and you're reading about how Abraham was justified by faith, and how God is moving in this way, and setting people free by grace through faith, you can't really summarize those chapters and all that you read without the word mercies. And I love that Paul kind of says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God— Everything I've just told you can be summarized with the mercy of God. When you read Romans 3.23 and Romans 3.26 and Romans 6.23 and the Romans Road, all of that, right? Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's all the mercies of God. One author said it this way. It says, just mercies upon sinners who did not deserve any mercies. Paul does not talk about what he, we did. He is just talking about what God did for us. He uses those mercies as a great moral dynamic and spiritual incentive. When you think about all the good things that are in the first 11 chapters, all the good things center around God, right? The gift of Christ, the gift of God, the love of God. But then when you talk about all the bad things in the first 11 chapters, that all deals with us. All that sin, all that breaking of God's law, it all, that all centers in our humanity. But then when God allows us to be saved through Christ, it's now dealing with those mercies 
of God. So, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you do what? How would you summarize what he kind of ends the chapter with? It's in your notes, right? A living sacrifice. He summarizes this, I kind of summarize this in his last statements here, that you give your bodies a living sacrifice, and then what kind of sacrifice? Holy, acceptable unto God. So now, what does the word holy mean there? And we know it doesn't mean without faults, because we all have faults and failures. So what is the word holy referring to there? Set apart, right? So I'm a living sacrifice, and as I'm living this life, I'm setting apart my life unto him. I'm set apart. And I love that he says here, that's acceptable, that it's a holy, set apart, and that's an acceptable sacrifice. How do I become an acceptable and holy sacrifice? We go to verse 1, right? What does verse 1 tell us? By the mercies of God, we are saved, redeemed, right? So when I'm receiving of Christ, guess what I become? Now I'm able to be a living sacrifice. Put it this way. In Romans 1, in Romans 2, if I was to come to God and go, here, God, here's all my righteousness. Am I an acceptable sacrifice? I can lay my life before God in my sin, and God would reject that sacrifice, right? He would not receive it. And I always think of that story of Cain and Abel, right? One sacrifice he received, one he did not. And why didn't he receive one of those sacrifices? Some people would say, well, because it was a grain offering. There was no blood involved. It's not really true. We see in the Old Testament grain offerings. What's that? Yeah, right? It was the heart behind it. Well, I hear some stuff I'll just throw together and give to God, right? When you think about that, it's that heart, that, that desire, And God looked out and said, no, I'm not accepting that sacrifice. In a similar way, when we come in our sin before God and we offer ourselves to God, God, I'm here. I'm I'm willing to live for you, but I'm in my sin. He says, I can't accept that sacrifice because you've not been cleansed by the sacrifice. But once I receive Christ, the sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God, now in Christ, right? Remember, his righteousness has been given to me, right? Romans 5. I can now come before God and say, I want to be a sacrifice. And he says, okay, now you're accepted because you're really in Christ. Therefore, I've already accepted Christ's sacrifice. Right? And what's the evidence that Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, was accepted by God? He rose from the dead. That's the evidence that God approved of that sacrifice. And so here we understand we can be a sacrifice to God, only an acceptable sacrifice, rather, only because the mercies of God have allowed us to be a living sacrifice. And I know maybe I'm kind of really unpacking that more than, you know, maybe I'm building a mountain out of a small thing. But, but to me, that's huge. That the only reason I'm acceptable to God, that my life would be acceptable to him as a sacrificial life, is because of the mercies of God, which have allowed me to be acceptable in his presence. The only reason I'm holy is because of his sacrifice to cover me. We are called and encouraged to lay down our lives I'm sorry, to lay our lives down before the Lord because of the mercies of God. That's the motivation. Why in the world would I, as a follower of Christ, I've received Christ, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven when I die. Why would I lay my life down? Here's the reality. Could I be fully saved and yet be more focused on myself than Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Put it this way. Can I be more concerned about my career than necessarily making disciples and still be a Christian. I can be more concerned about my kids or my spouse 
or whatever else other thing and still go to church on Sundays and maybe even serve a little bit here or there. But my, I'm not really living and laying my life down for him. So what would motivate me then to say, okay, I'm still going to be involved in these things, but greater than these things is my living for Christ. I'm going to step up. I'm going to be a living sacrifice where everything is centered on Christ. What would motivate me to do that? Paul doesn't use any other logic than the mercies of God. He said, because of the mercies of God, this is just reasonable, right? It just makes sense. And so we understand it this way, that when we surrender to that degree, we will experience transformation like none other. We will see our lives be used to accomplish the holy and perfect will of God. Isn't that what he goes on to say in verse 2? Be not conformed to this world. We really unpacked that last week. We spent a lot of time around that last week, um, what that phrase means and what it doesn't mean. Real quick review. People have used that to mean what? What is the wrong way we use that? We talked about this last week. What are some wrong ways that we use that phrase? Uh, be, not, be not conformed to the world. Yeah, so what we wear, right, what we do, like as far as watching movies or not watching movies, listening to this music or not that music, um, you know, those kind of worldly things. Like we don't listen to contemporary Christian music because that's of the world, right? That's how people use this in the wrong context. The way we really understand it, though, is how I think, right, what drives me, what motivates me. I'm not driven with the things of the world, the greed. We talked about it before, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'm driven with the things of Christ. And it says here in verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So when I'm a living sacrifice, holy unto God, separated unto him, He's going to transform my thinking and my mind by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then now I'm able to live the will of God to glorify him. Basically, the idea here is, if we had to summarize it, we humble ourselves before God and his will and his plan. Uh, Peter says it this way. Under the mighty hand of God, we submit ourselves. We lay ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We give him our will and surrender to his will for our lives, which is accomplished through disciplined prayer, right? Isn't that really what he's talking about here? When I'm, when I'm in understanding what it is to, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom, he's changing my mind. Now, we know it comes through the Word of God, but it's that disciplined prayer. I'm praying and seeking him in the renewing of my mind. So now that we understand our life is one of consecration and humility, we can now understand our relationship to other believers. And so remember, we talked about this book, this, or this letter, or this chapter, wow, this chapter in the book of Romans can be summarized with a life of consecration, a life of humility, and a life of love. And so a life of consecration, living sacrifice, humility, it's not my will, but yours be done. And then verses 3 through 16 deals with that life of love, how I can now put this into practice. So our relationships to other believers— uh, and we're going to read this together. Uh, it's a lot of verses, so let's do three through, oh, let's see. How about like three through eight? Three through eight and nine through 16. So two volunteers. Three through eight. I need somebody to read that for us. Three through eight. Julie, awesome. And then nine through 16. Somebody to do that. I'm sorry. You'll split the second one with somebody. Okay, you read 9 through 12, and Greg will read 13 through 16. There you go. There you go. All right, Julie, nice and loud.
Okay, so there is a lot in that few verses there. And this is why, maybe you can see why I said last week that some have said that there's no real flow to chapter 12, that it's just more of a collection of encouragements, of exhortations. Because if you read this chapter, uh, and you, we're going to talk about like the section on like using your gifts for the Lord and all that. But if you take that part kind of out, it, the rest of it kind of reads more like Proverbs, right? It's kind of got that kind of Proverbs style. Um, you know, you look at like um, even verses like 9 through 16. It's these like kind of short kind of statements, you know. Uh, verse 10, be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. It's these short little encouragements, practical things that we can do, uh, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Those are kind of three different little things that are just encouragements. Hey, here's some ways that we can practically live this out. And what are we living out? What is 3 through 16 talking about? What's our relationship to other believers, okay, primarily in the church or in the body of Christ? But also it's saying, as you're a living sacrifice up here, here's how that looks. What's it look like to be a living sacrifice? He tells us. Here's what it looks like to be a living sacrifice. Be kindly affectionate one to another. Um, rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. There's one that I need to work on, right? Patient in tribulation. What does that mean? Well, when hard things are happening, we need to be patient. What are we patient for? Whatever God's will is in this, Lord, I'm just waiting on you. Is that how we humanly want to respond to tribulation, persecution, trials, and testings? No. We want to know, why am I going through this? How long is it going to last? What's the, what's the result going to be? What's on the other side? That's not how tribulations work all the time. And I always think about Job. When does Job find out why he was tested? Never. Never, right? Nowhere. Yeah, he knows the end result, which is, he comes to a point of understanding, uh, God, you are God and I am not, so I'll just trust you. I mean, I'm summarizing. God blesses with a double blessing and all that, but nowhere in any of that at the end of the book does God go, hey, by the way, Job, you were good. You were righteous. The reason you were tested was because Satan came up to heaven, was throwing some stuff around, you know, trying to cause a scene. 
He doesn't say anything like that. He just, he lets it go at. Job just merely humbles himself under God's mighty hand. So when you see this, that's why Paul is saying, be patient. Here's the other thing too. So many people in scripture have experienced things that when they write about it, we go, wow, it's really powerful that they said that. I said it this morning. Uh, Paul, on his way to Rome to be imprisoned, to go before Nero to be martyred, is shipwrecked and spends a couple months, three months, I believe, on, on an island, doing what God called him to do, was arrested, shipwrecked, goes through all of this, goes to Rome, imprisoned for a couple years, and then beheaded for his faith. So when Paul's writing, hey, be patient in tribulation, he can say from not only a spiritual enlightenment and revelation, which he was given, but he's saying, hey, practically I've learned it's a whole lot better to be patient than to not be patient in tribulation. He's actually speaking from both spiritual giving, the Spirit giving him this wisdom through revelation, but also I think there's a practical application here that he's saying, hey, I've learned this too, right? That's why he says he's content in whatsoever state. So that's why people say this passage or this chapter kind of has that flow to it. But I think it's, it flows all together perfectly with, again, how can I do all of these things by the mercies of God? What are the mercies of God? Go back to Romans 8 right? The love of God has been given to you and nothing will separate you. So go to 12. How am I patient in tribulation? Man, but the love of God cannot be taken from me, that I am in Christ and nothing, no persecution, no sword will separate me from the love of God. So he can say here, be patient in tribulation. Okay, because I I can be patient because I know I have the love of Christ, which is with me forever. So it's all connected. It's not just a random throwing together of encouragements. I believe it is a good flow to the chapter, to the rest of the book as well. So let's jump into the notes, because uh, we kind of summarize this a little bit as we move through it. In this section, we see Paul addresses the dynamic of how believers treat and minister. The ministry primarily takes place in the church. Now again, I'm not saying you can't minister outside the church. Of course we do, right? But in this context, he's specifically talking first about using our gifts and talents in the church. Then it talks about, I believe, some of these things can be applied outside of the church. But primarily, it's dealing with the church and the relationship of believers. Paul uses the illustration of a body, and the members of the church are the various parts of the body. And I remember when I was in youth group, I used to say things like, you know, if you're a toe— be a toe. If you're a hand, be the hand. If you're the ear, be the ear. And usually that illustration can't go too far with teenagers before other comments are being made about body parts and what part they are or don't want to be and all of that. So I don't like going too far down that road. But the idea is this. Just like your body is made up of many members, many parts, so the church is made up of many parts and many members. Uh, He also did this in 1 Corinthians 12. He referenced this is the same illustration we know. Um, and is this in your notes? The reference 1 Corinthians 12? Okay, I'm getting a nod. Okay. So he did this also in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. You're also going to note that here in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk about some of the gifts. Okay. Uh, primarily uh, 12 in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the gifts there, and Romans 12. Now, you're also going to note if you did a side by side, you're going to find out. There's some things in 1 Corinthians 12 he talks about that he doesn't mention here. And vice versa, there's some things that don't necessarily overlap. It doesn't mean Paul was confused or forgot what the gifts were. He's just speaking in general terms. This is not him trying to give a dogmatic, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, here's all the gifts. He's saying, here's some examples of gifts. And as you're using these gifts, here's how we use them. 
okay? So that's why if we take both of those sections together, along with Ephesians 4, we're going to get more of a fuller picture of the gifts, if you will, that are given to the church. So that's just kind of for clarity. Uh, Our role in the body is to use our spiritual gifts to the building up of the body and the perfecting or maturing of other believers, to edify or build up the church. This is why I find it extremely difficult for a believer to grow in Christ and be disconnected from the church. Does not mean that you, what's that old saying, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, right? That's true. But based on scripture and based on all this with the gifts and the ministering and all that, I find it very difficult then looking at scripture for a believer who is consistently not a part of a local church to grow in the exercising of gifts that seem to be given for the purpose of the church. Does that make sense? I'm not saying a Christian can't grow in some ways without the local church. Um, And you can be a Christian without attending a local church or being a part of a local church. But I believe that based on scripture, if we're going to see a Christian really grow as we're supposed to, we need each other. We need the body of Christ. That's the whole point of this passage. Also, while it is true that all believers make up the universal body of Christ, so we just talked about um, our brothers and sisters in India, okay? There's no, in Christ, there's no difference between us and them, right? I mean, there's skin tone differences, language differences, cultural differences. By the way, all those things should be embraced as really good things because that's amazing how God can, in Christ, bring all these different people groups into one, okay? I mean, again, what's the, what's the cure for racism in our world today? It's not more marches and more rallies and more policy changes and this and that and other things. I'm all for those things to some extent. Those things do good things, okay? But the real way to solve prejudice at any degree is Jesus Christ. The church is the only thing on planet Earth that actually unites different people groups together under the same banner of Christ. Everything else is based in social financial, skin tone, gender, all those things. But only in Christianity is all that removed, and it's just we're in Christ. And so it doesn't matter. I always think back to when Sandra and I were in Mexico, and we were sitting in these churches, and these people were preaching in Spanish, and I took two years of Spanish that failed me horribly because I couldn't remember a word of it. And I remember we were sitting there in church, I remember thinking a few times, you know, I had no idea what they were saying, right, really, because we didn't understand all of it. Translator would help us out a little bit. But there was something about just worshiping with other believers. I didn't need to know necessarily what they were saying because I could just, we could just sense the presence of God working there. And so it was a really cool thing to be able to worship with believers completely in a different culture, completely in a different language, and yet still be able to say, man, we just worshiped God together. And, and so we would sing some, we had a little choir thing. Um, I don't, I just, I say it like that because I wasn't very, integral in the choir. Um, I tried to sing very, very softly and in the back because they were really good singers and I was just there. Um, well, they, everyone was better than me. So I guess that's saying a lot, but, or not saying much, maybe, I don't know. But yes, so we would go into these churches and we would sing English songs to the congregation. And it was so cool. We were in a church and we sang a song. I don't know which one it was. The missionary had us singing these songs. And I mean, yeah, it was Fishers of Men. So you could tell what generation he was from. Um, and so he's like, we'll do Fishers of Men. So we're like, haven't sang this since like, you know, I was like 14 helping in VBS. Um, and so we sang Fishers of Men to a church of mainly adults. And I was like, this is kind of different. Um, and it was so cool. We finished singing and the missionary was like, now 
you sing to them, and the church sang the song to us in, I think that was the Mayan church that sang it to us. So we got to hear Fishers of Men in Mayan. And so it was amazing. And we're like, this is so cool to worship together. So that's the beauty of this, of what Paul's getting at here. In the church, that's why I get so frustrated with things like, or titles like Black Church, or this kind of people group church or whatever. It's, there is no racial divide in the church. Now, I do think that there is a place for some level of, like I'm not totally anti-denominations either, because I do believe there are some teachings that aren't accurate to Scripture. It's okay to say, you know what, we're in Christ, but we don't agree with that teaching, so we're going to come over here. There's nothing wrong with that. That was the whole point of the Protestant Reformation was to be able to say, hey, we kind of agree on this teaching, so we're going to come over here, but we're still okay with this church over here because we're all in Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it doesn't become an issue of saying, because you don't do church this or that way, or you have this or that style of communion, now you're not Christian. That's where the problem comes into play. But understanding that the church is this beautiful connection of individuals, and it's universal. It goes beyond borders. However— we must note that Paul is actually speaking specifically to not the universal body of Christ here. He's speaking to who? The local church. And what local church is that? The church at Rome. When he wrote to 1 Corinthians, what was the local church? The church at Corinth. Now we know it might have been the church at Corinth was like these four house churches because they didn't all gather in one building necessarily at this time. Some places did, but maybe not in areas like Ephesus would have had multiple house churches most likely. But it was considered, this is the local church, right? And so when you understand this, we understand that Paul is not speaking of the universal church. He's speaking of a local church in the passages dealing with the body illustration. So church at Rome, church at Corinth, church at Ephesus. Um, this tells me that we must be involved consistently in a local church if we are going to fulfill our role in the body. So, some keys to consider in our relationships with other believers. So we're going to look at this real quick. Um, first thing, honest evaluation. Okay, verse 3. For I say, through the grace of given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So break that down for me. What's he saying there? How would we put that in our understanding today? When he says, hey, don't think too highly of yourself. Think soberly according to the measure of faith that every man's been given. Like, what does that mean to you? How would you put that in your own words? Okay, yeah, don't be prideful, right? Be humble. Why, why should I be humble? Why, why can I not be proud up here and think everyone else is down here? What would cause me to be proudful? or to be prideful as a believer. Look at my faith. Look at the great faith that I have. But what does Paul kind of do right there? He says, hey, by the way, every man's been given a measure of faith. So that faith you've been given was given to them. So you needed to be given faith, and they need to be given faith, and so you're actually like this, not like this. But that's not really easy for us, is it? Sometimes we tend to think this way, more like the look down on them, whether because we think our gifts are more important, our position is more important, uh, we haven't sinned the way they've sinned, we haven't done what they believe. I think, was it Julie where you were reading that? What does your translation say for verse 3 instead of soberly? For by, grace, for by the grace given you, I say, every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Okay, sober judgment. 
Does anyone's translation have something different than sober? Sober? What do we think of there? What does it mean to think soberly? Okay, realistically. The Nazi says sound judgment. Okay. <clears throat> right? Another thoughts on that soberly? What do we think of? What's the opposite of sober? Drunk, right? That's what we think of. Drunk, sober. Those are the two kind of ends of the spectrum, okay? When you're, what? Okay, think with maturity, wisdom, okay? When you're drunk, what do people, when you look at somebody who's drunk, how are they acting? It's kind of foolishly, out of control, right? So when you, if you compare that to our thinking, we're kind of all over the place. Soberly is this thinking of using clear understanding, okay? I'm, I'm thinking clearly, when someone's drunk, why is it so bad to drive drunk? Because you're not thinking clearly. You're not able to look and react and respond. Paul's saying, no, think soberly. Think clear. Don't have anything in your way. Don't, don't confuse your brothers and sisters in this or that way, thinking you're better than them. No, no. Think according to Scripture and realize you've all needed grace, right? Uh, we should strive to understand in understanding this passage what our gifts are so we can exercise them by faith in the church. The two attitudes to avoid in this evaluation would be either overrating or underrating ourselves. So the first thing we need to do is be humble, not think ourselves better than anyone else. But what's the other uh, wrong way to think about ourselves? We think too little of ourselves, right? And I think a lot of people fall in one of these two categories, either over, overrating or underrating themselves. Thinking we can do it all or our most important, that's wrong. We know that's not appropriate or thinking we can't do anything. Both are destructive in the church. It's got to be me. It's got to be me doing it. I've got all the gifts. Well, no. No one has all the gifts. That's the whole point of the body, the many members illustration. Or thinking, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm unable to do anything because I'm so weak and incapable. So, honest evaluation. We think of ourselves the way we should. We think of our gifts the way we should. Okay? Uh, faithful cooperation, verses 4 through 8. Um, we're just going to hit this real quick, and then we'll close in prayer, actually, because we're running out of time. So 4 through 8, this is the illustration of the body again, right? The many members and all of that. Um, he actually starts listing the gifts. But what we need to think about here when we understand this is we must realize that whatever gift God has given me, I cannot compare to someone else's gift. Okay? Notice that encouragement is as important as preaching or teaching. Right? Does he, in this text, does he make any indication that that the teacher is more important than the encourager. No, he says it's the same. You're both vitally important to the health of the church. However, the key is to know this is the gift that God has given me and exercise that gift with faith so that it will build up and strengthen the church. Uh, in your notes here, we see the gifts that are listed uh, in this passage. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, ruling, and mercy. Again, not an exhaustive list, but we see here what Paul lays forth. Um, when we break these gifts down, uh, some would interpret these gifts a little bit differently as far as what exactly is being implied. So I'll give you what I discovered in my studies, and then we'll kind of talk about what maybe some others have made it to be. So the first one is prophecy. Uh, the number one definition I was seeing for this use of the word prophecy this is the idea of the act of directly speaking the word of God. You're receiving direct revelation from God, therefore declaring that 
to other individuals. This would be used to those that wrote Scripture, for example, or those that in the Old Testament literally said the word of the Lord and then said, thus says the Lord. They weren't uh, adding to that. It was literally God revealed this to me, okay? Now, we as a church believe that there are no prophets today in the sense that there was in the early church. Now, why would that be? How could that be? Because obviously in the laying the groundwork of the church, Paul's receiving direct revelation from God to write the word of God. Peter received direct revelation from God. God is moving this way. We believe once the word of God is sealed and confirmed with John, right, the book of Revelation, God begins to move. Even when you read the New Testament, you see God moving away from and stop talking so much about prophecy and more about teaching, right? And the word of God becomes the center stage. So we would say the, the office of prophet, and there's denominations that say, oh, that's prophet so-and-so, or um, that's apostle so-and-so, right? The office of prophet, the position of prophet as a position of leadership in the church, the, the office of apostle, we as a church do not believe those are roles that are given today because the word of God is sealed. What would happen is, and we talked about this on Wednesday night even too, if someone declared to, be, declared to be a prophet today, there's a very simple way to know whether they're really a prophet or not. Okay? I don't believe, in my experience, let me say it this way, most of, if not all of, the people that claim to be prophets on TV or online or all the stuff you see uh, claiming to do prophecies and all that, it's amazing the amount of time they're wrong like over and over again, they're wrong and they're wrong and they're wrong. Then they get one right. And then everybody seems to forget about all these wrong prophecies that didn't come out quite like they thought it would. And they all focus, but yeah, but look, he got this one right or she got this one right. Um, there, I don't know what it is. There's, a, there's this, and I'm still working on this sermon series called Strange Fire. I believe there's this movement, it's always been in the church, to try to mimic these things for personal gain, personal glory. I'm not saying everyone that does this does that, but I would argue, and I would say, and we can get into this more when we have more time, but, but the office of apostle, we see the apostles ceased, right? We don't see Paul naming new apostles, right? Now, we could say, well, the word apostle just means sent one. So anyone who goes out, missionaries are sent ones, so we can call them apostles. You could use the term if you want, but they don't have the office of apostle, okay? Because again, an apostle was selected specifically by Christ, Right? By the hand of Christ. Even Paul was p- chosen by Christ in the road to Damascus. So we don't see the office of an apostle. We don't see the office of prophecy. Now, what some would say this gift means is they would say, well, it's not the direct revelation from God. It's the proclaiming of the truth of God. So they're, they're declaring a prophecy by just revealing what's in Scripture. If somebody wants to define it that way, I mean, I'm not going to like, split theological hairs there. But this idea of receiving direct revelation from God and then revealing that for the first time ever, and it's never been before revealed, I don't believe that's a gift that is given today. I believe that was a gift that was used in the foundation of the church. And then once the word of God is complete, we see that gift no longer being given by the Spirit. Now, there may come a point in the future, book of Revelation, where God, obviously the two prophets at the Wailing Wall and all of this, God may begin to use that again for that dispensation of time, But I believe right now we have the word of God. I don't need a prophet to come tell me a new word. I have the word of God. So how do I know if somebody is a prophet and really is a prophet of God? Because, you know, God can do whatever he wants. So how do I know? It's pretty easy. Number one, does anything they say contradict scripture? Because if they prophesy anything or say anything that goes against scripture, eh, false prophet. 
if they prophesy anything that does not come true. Now, I'm not talking, now somebody, well, in 50 years this will happen. Okay, well, I'm talking like, when you read scripture, you read, they prophesied and it happened. Elijah said, it's not going to rain. And guess what? It didn't rain. Okay? So when you see this happening, that's what I mean, is that if somebody says, well, in five years or in two years, God's going to do this or that, and that time comes and goes and that didn't happen, false prophet. There's no, there's no prophets in scripture that were true prophets of God that got it wrong. There were tons of people in scripture that tried to say they were prophets of God and were failed, or they failed. And guess what the people of God did with those prophets? Okay? So like Benny Hedden would have died like 30 years ago. Okay? I'm just using it as an example. And I don't know why we're obsessed with, with what, why there's teachers that are obsessed with being these things. I don't know why we feel like we need a new word and all this. Man, we have a hard enough time applying this revealed truth. So I personally believe that prophecy here would mean the revealing of new revelation, which, again, if we believe that, then, we're, then the Book of Mormon is just new revelation. Or this, there, where's the line? Like Sandra just got up tomorrow and said, oh, God has given me a word. I'm going to write a new book of the New Testament. And if I believe prophecy is for today, and she starts writing this book, and things seem to line up with Scripture because she knows the Bible, oh, she's a prophet. No, not necessarily. So we just need to be guarded there. Okay. I think Sandra would be an awesome prophet. Okay, anyway. And we'd have a really nice house too, probably. So, okay, real quick, let's go through these, and then we're going to pray and get out of here. I keep looking back there, and the screen's not even on. I don't even know. I'm just conditioned, TJ. You've got me conditioned to look right there. I used to look right there, but now I look there. Okay, ministry. This is a broad uh, term for ministry that implies the idea of serving the church. Uh, This is used in various forms of serving and has the same root word as the word deacon. So you guys know the word deacon just means to serve or one who serves. This is not the same. This word for ministry and the word for deacon are not the same word. But some of you know this. In Greek, there's what's called a root word. So this one word will lead to different adding-ons of the end of those words. Okay, so they change the ending a little bit. Yes. No, no, no. This is kind of like, so, so deacon is, I've been chosen for this office to serve. Like, I'm in this position, and the primary function of this office is to serve as a deacon, as a spirit-filled form of leader in the church. This term for ministry seems to imply just the broad sense of someone who serves the church. So it could be the person who picks up the trash. It could be the person who turns the lights on and off, the person who takes an offering. It's any term of this broad sense of the idea of someone serving the church. So kind of think about this is the broad sense. The word deacon is that office of service. It's kind of how we would look at it. Now here's the thing real quick. We're all called to minister, right? We're all called to serve. This doesn't mean if I'm not gifted with ministry, I go to God when I die and say, I didn't serve the church, but you didn't give me the gift of ministry, so it's on you. No, it's saying the person who has this gift, they serve the church just it just flows from them. They don't have to go, all right, I guess I'll go to the church and clean, right? They're excited to go to the church and do something. They're they're not just the building. I mean, they can serve the body of Christ outside the building, but they're excited to minister to the body of Christ. They just love doing that. So we all should strive to minister, but some have that spiritual gift. Therefore, it flows more naturally from them. Teaching. Uh, This specific idea of teaching implies the idea of communicating the truth of God's word 
in an understandable and effective manner. Now, we know we've got a couple teachers here, okay, <clears throat> teaching in the school. Obviously, Julie teaches our kids on Sunday morning. Um, it's not, this isn't specifically the idea of just teaching any subject, okay? And we've all had teachers in school that were really good at teaching this subject or we just connected with them. This specifically is saying teaching the Word of God. So there are those who are just very talented teachers who can communicate well. I would, I would wonder if that person then, if they're saved, maybe they have the gift of teaching for the Word of God and it just kind of overflows into other realms. Or, or maybe if they did become a Christian, they were saved, God is already kind of showing them a little bit of what he's going to use them for. So some of that could be true, but this specifically is the idea of communicating specifically God's Word. Exhortation, this is the idea of encouraging those that are growing weak. Uh, this can be done through our words and actions. So in the church, there's mature believers and weak believers, or, or strong and weak. The strong who have the gift of encouragement go to the ones who are weak, who are struggling, and we encourage them to grow in their strength, to get stronger, okay? To move from milk to meat is kind of the idea. I'm encouraging them, I'm pushing them, I'm challenging them to move on. Giving, this seems to refer to one that has financial wealth and gives in a way that is effortless. So they just kind of give they don't have to think about being generous. It's just, it's their natural reaction. Uh, ruling, uh, this implies to those that have authority in the church. Of course, they rule or lead under the great shepherd. So they don't, they don't rule with an iron fist. They're not these, you know, dictator type leaders. It's saying, hey, I understand that I'm here, but I'm under the, the great shepherd. I'm merely ministering this way. Now, this isn't just pastors. Uh, this could be anyone that's the position of leadership in a church, um, that they're ruling in the right way. Mercy, this gift seems to have a wide application, but may be dealing with relation to the poor or sick. Uh, it was the church that started hospitals and began to display a love and care for the sick or poor. So this is somebody, again, when they see somebody who's sick or, or poor or impoverished or has needs, they don't have to be told to go help this person. They rush to show mercy to this person. And again, many of us know people like this in our lives. Um, we all strive for that. But again, this person just seems to kind of flow from them. Through the application of the spiritual gifts, we see a balance in the church where needs are met. I mean, imagine a church that is fully functioning in all members. And when we say members, we mean they're part of the body of Christ because they're saved. But I do believe it's important to be a member of a local church. I think that adds that intimacy with the church. I think that's important uh, to be a member. Some have even suggested that uh, membership classes weren't in place. They didn't take role but that basically what the church in the early church was, the people that were part of that local church, they were treated more like members than attenders because they were held accountable and they were, they were um, encouraged to serve and to be a part of the church. And so this member idea here, could you imagine a church where all the members of the church were fully functioning in every gift? I mean, it would be like, you'd look around a church and go, we have no needs. <laughs> we have no wants because things are just getting done. But what happens? People get discouraged because they were serving using their gifts and somebody didn't notice and didn't pay them attention. So they were serving for the wrong reasons. So they got burned out and they quit. Um, they're doing everything right. They're serving for the right reasons. They love what they do. Something in their life happens. Now I have to step away and I can't do this anymore. And now there's seemingly a void where that gift isn't being active right now. Um, sometimes people are afraid to step out. So they have the gift, but they never make it known. They sit back on their hands and they're just, I don't know. I'm intimidated, right? That's someone else's job. I think too little of myself, okay? I think too highly of myself. I'm doing everything so nobody knows there's a need, okay? So some of these things happen in churches. 
But if a church could get to the point of being balanced, where the person that has the gift of giving is just giving like crazy, and you know what happens? When people are exercising these gifts, I don't have the gift of giving, let's say, and I see somebody just being super generous, not because they're making a show of it, but I just find out. What's that going to encourage me to do? And I can do that. Look how merciful they're being. I could be merciful like that. But here's the thing. When we blow it, and we don't do what we're supposed to do when we're supposed to do it, we can't beat ourselves up either and tear ourselves down. We have to realize there's grace for forgiveness, and we move on. So very, very important to understand that. All right? Well, it's 10 after. I wanted to end a little early. I never end early. So let's go ahead and— uh, Apparently, I did one time, and it blew Anthony's mind. He was like, oh, my goodness, he just ended early. My dad never ends early. So let's do this. We'll close in prayer and uh, open it up for just a minute if you guys have any questions, comments, or thoughts, and then we'll close. Any questions, comments, or thoughts? Yes. Yes. Oh, Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. I th- right. And that's, I think, the key is that, again, like, so, you know, in this passage, she says, if you have this gift, this is how you use it. You know, be, be gracious this way. But in other passages, we find out we're all called to be merciful teachers. We're all called to be gracious and giving. So I think what ends up happening is maybe, because I've heard it said that every believer, most theologians would say, every believer has one or two spiritual gifts. We know that's given to us at the moment of salvation. When we're saved and the Spirit of God indwells us, he gives us that gift. Maybe it's something, a talent we already had that he illuminates our mind to. Now we see it in the fullness. I wonder if maybe it isn't so much like I, I'm exchanging this gift for this gift, or I used to have this gift and now I have this one. It may be I still have my couple of gifts that I've had all along, but as I've grown and matured in the Lord, I've now grown in this area. So now that becomes effortless to me, like someone who has that gift. Does that make sense? So I don't necessarily like change gifts necessarily. Like, so somebody who has the gift of teaching from the Spirit of God, they will always have the gift of teaching to some degree. They, let's say they have teaching and, I mean, most people that I know that tend to be teachers that way tend to rule well or have a gift of administrative or ruling. So let's say they always have those things together. They're always going to have those spiritual gifts. I don't think God, we know where we read where spirit takes a gift away. Nope, you're no longer a teacher. You're giving, you know. But I think what happens is we start to maybe emphasize one over the other in our lives as we mature. Uh, they needed more of a teacher, but now I need to rule or lead. So I don't teach as much. But in this gift, and I'm now teaching through this. So I don't know if we necessarily like exchange them or lose them or get new ones. I just think as we grow in Christ, I realize my weaknesses. I'm not very giving. So I pray. I'm discerning. I try to learn. I work on being more giving by God's grace. So over time, I never used to be very giving, but now I give like crazy. It's not like I got the gift of giving now. It's merely I've grown in that area to where now it seems effortless. It's kind of where I kind of thought about it. But yes, I think in different stages of life where there's need in the church for different things, we can step up and utilize our gifts differently or grow in areas where we're not even really gifted, but we're just extending into our lack of a comfort zone and saying, God, grow me in this area. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that's where someone may say, you know what, Lord, you know my comfort is teaching. Or you know my comfort is uh, ministry. 
and I don't really like to be out, or let's say ministry. My comfort is ministry. I like to serve and, and help where I can, but getting up there terrifies me, or teaching terrifies me. But you're in a situation where somebody says, hey, would you be willing to teach this Bible study? Uh, it's not real comfortable. I don't know if I could do that. But you step out by faith and say, God, I want you to do this. So that's not my gift, but I'm willing to step out. And then that's why I've always loved that the Bible says the Holy Spirit is our comforter. So why did God give us the comforter? Because he's going to call us to do things that aren't very comfortable, and we need him with us. And so, yeah, that's where I would say, yeah, I think, I, I do think once we're given a gift by the Spirit of God, I don't think we ever lose it. Um, and I, I get so tired of that idea, that, that what's that saying? If you don't use it, you'll lose it. I think that's ridiculous. But, um, right, right. I do think there's a point where I can quench the Spirit in my life in sin, unrepentant sin or, or rebellion. Where the Spirit of God, I still have the gift, I have all that I need, but I'm not actively pursuing the filling of the Spirit. So therefore, I'm not really utilizing it. But it's right there under the surface. As soon as I turn back, let's go. So there's no time needed there. But yeah, great question. Any other thoughts or comments? No? All right. Well, let's pray, guys. We'll ask God to go with us through this week and encourage our hearts together. Father, We thank you, Lord, so much for tonight and for your grace and love in our lives. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for, Lord, just giving us the gift and and the indwelling of the Spirit to to comfort us and to teach us all things and to guide us and lead us into all things and to strengthen us in all things. Lord, that you would just allow us to be open to what your leading would be. Father, I pray that as we've all, uh, in Christ, We've been given gifts and abilities. I pray that we would use them for your glory. I pray that nothing we do in this church or in the church would be for self or for our glory, but for you and the edifying of the body. Father, I pray that you would just affirm these things in our hearts and minds and just help us to know the truth of your word. To read this passage and not be convicted is nearly impossible. Lord, I know in my own life there's so many areas where or just the idea of being kindly affectionate one to another. Like that's just, Lord, there's so many times in the course of a week where I get annoyed and frustrated by someone. And I'm not really being kind. I'm not really sharing that kindness with someone. As we said this morning, Lord, uh, I'm not having that gentle spirit. That graciousness isn't really pre- present in my life. And, and I know that there's repentance and there's grace and there's forgiveness and we can move on. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to grow in these areas that we could be living sacrifices for your glory to put you on display. Thank you, Father, for all of this. And thank you for these that are here tonight. I pray that you'd give us a great week ahead.